Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. That's where we are today. 1 Corinthians. We're going to give a guided tour through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, seeing the, the way that Paul writes this letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we will begin. And while you're finding that, here's the key concept today. Correct what is carnal by the power of the Spirit. That's a good summary of what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Correct what is carnal. Carnal means of the flesh. The questions of the Corinthians were how they ought to live, what they ought to do, how they ought to model the fact that they were Christians. And they had a, a lot to change because it was a difficult situation in Corinth. Paul's letter to the Corinthians shows us that we ought not to idealize the past. Sometimes you might, have, might meet somebody who has an over-idealized sense of nostalgia about the past, what they call the good old days, all oh, the good old days. It's not like the good old days anymore. It's as if the good old days didn't have any problems. The fact is that we've always had problems. We've just had different problems, okay? An over-idealized view of the past is sometimes a temptation that we have when we think about the first century church, these people who are persecuted for their faith, who are the foundation stones for the movement of Christianity. Sometimes we get a very rosy picture about who they were and what they did. But all of that comes to a crashing halt when you meet the church in Corinth. Because in Corinth, we see in this church clickishness, we see jealousy, we see rivalry, we see immorality, we see public drunkenness at church functions and more. There's a lot for them to work on. And we in the flesh might have been tempted, if we were Paul, to kind of give up on this group. To say, look, guys, I hate to say it, but your dysfunction is way too high. It's time for you to disband, stand down, let somebody else represent the gospel of Jesus Christ in this city because you guys are blowing it big time. But that's not what Paul does. Even though there's a lot of problems in this church, he still sees them as brothers and sisters in the Lord who need good guidance and teaching and are, are going to be vessels for the glory of the Lord. Corinth was a tough town. It was a cosmopolitan city located in a very narrow strip of land that connects northern Greece and southern Greece. I want to show you the map. There you see Corinth with the red dot, and you see that strip of land I'm talking about. And on either side, we have on one, in the north we have the Ionian Sea, and in the south we have the Aegean Sea. And it makes Corinth a city which is filled with commerce, because even though today in that uh, strip of land there is a canal, in Paul's day there wasn't a canal. And so what happened was sailors would bring their cargo to one side of the land, unload the cargo, carry it over to the other side, and be on their way, whether they were going north or south. And they needed some place to stay. While they were doing all that work, the city of Corinth grew up, and it was a seaman's port filled with the usual kind of stuff that happens in seaport cities. But there's more to the story. If we're really going to understand Corinth in Paul's day, we need to recognize that this is actually the second city with the name Corinth in this location. Uh, years earlier, 146 B.C., the first city named Corinth in this location led a rebellion of the city-states against the Republic of Rome, and the Republic uh, answered in force. The legions came, and when the dust of the battle settled, those who were still living were deported and forced to live as refugees, and that first city of Corinth was torn down, the buildings flattened, and it was left a wasteland for about a hundred years. 44 BC, it is Julius Caesar who sees again the strategic location of this city and wants to rebuild it as a, a, a seaport merchant town. And so that's just what he did. 44 BC, he had the city rebuilt, but now the question is, who's going to live there? And so Julius Caesar solved that question by freeing slaves, and it was initially populated with freed slaves. 
And by the time of Paul's day, who he's talking to in Corinth, Corinth are the families of these freed slaves and other merchants who have come, seamen who have come. But what's distinctly lacking in Corinth is any history of wealth. Because these people who have moved into Corinth and their families of the freed slaves, they are all just pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, trying to make a way in the world. And so Paul is right on the money when he says in 1 Corinthians 1.26, Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. All of the finance, the wealth of Corinth does not come from inheritance. It comes from hard work. And this rough and tumble city was filled with the normal kind of expected vice of a seaman's town, prostitution and that kind of thing. But you can't blame it all on the sailors because there's another layer of what's happening here in Corinth. This is the location of the, the temple to the pagan goddess Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was a, it was a, a sex fertility type of, of religion, and there were a thousand temple prostitutes functioning in Aphrodite's temple. Part of the worship of Aphrodite was having sex with these prostitutes. So you can understand the, the atmosphere of this town. In fact, there was a slang term in the Greek that Paul used in his, in his era, the slang term in Greek to Corinthianize meant to be morally loose. The reputation of this city absolutely preceded it. So needless to say, people who are coming to Christ out of that pagan environment, they're bringing baggage in. They're bringing hang-ups and, and hurt. There are all kinds of issues and questions in terms of how are now we to live this new faith called Christianity. And Paul writes this letter while he's in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. It's about the year 55 or 56. And what has happened is messengers from the church in Corinth has come to Ephesus with questions for Paul. We, we, they want to give him a report on what's happening and specific questions on how they are to kind of handle their problems. And so Corinthians turns out to be a letter of a series of answers to issues that um, the church is facing. And the first thing that he hears about is the division that's happening inside the body of the church. So go to chapter 1, verse 10, and Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Still another, I follow Cephas, who is Peter. Another, I follow Christ. What has happened is these messengers from Chloe, who Chloe was a woman of some importance in the church, probably a house church met in her home, members of her household, and when you hear that in the Bible, don't think children, think servants. So her servants have come to Ephesus reporting about this division. Fan clubs, if you will, have grown up kind of uh, dividing uh, around these famous superstar preachers of the time, and some were saying, well, I follow the preaching of Paul, others Peter, and so forth, and some were taking the high road, no, no, I follow only Jesus Christ, but it was all the same attitude, and that is an attitude of division, and we're not sure what the dividing issues were, but Paul responds by saying, that is all bad when it comes to the, the preaching of the gospel message. If you can't get along, you're not going to be effective for Jesus Christ. In fact, go to verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Some in our fellowship here at Quail Lakes, from time to time I see, I see it, some of, of you wear a t-shirt that says, it's all Jesus. I see that every once in a while. It's all Jesus. Here's what I think. I think Paul would love to go to Corinth and sell those T-shirts to these people. 
Yeah? It's all Jesus. It's not about some famous preacher, some famous program. It's not about the latest uh, uh, curriculum or this author who writes all these books. It's all about Jesus. You've got to be united around serving Jesus alone. And by the time we get to chapter 3, go ahead and turn there, he gives an illustration of why unity matters. He's still speaking about this issue in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And what Paul is demonstrating there is the exact principle that we call divine design. God calls us into ministry areas according to our giftedness, according to our personality, according to His plan for us, the design He has for us. And the job of every Christian is to simply do your part. Do the part that you are meant to do because it's not your power that does spiritual work. It is God's power that does spiritual work. It's not about the individual. It's just about being faithful and letting God do the work. So Paul says, stop taking sides and start working to be the kind of believers you need to be. And the reality is they have a lot of work ahead of them to do that. And so now he responds to some of the issues that he hears about in the church. You go to chapter 5, and one of, the, one of the issues that he hears about is a gross immorality that's taking place in the church without any ramifications. You see, the Corinthian church had a twisted view of the grace of God. They not only, because they not only believed that since God was gracious that they were able to permit sin to take place, they were actually celebrating their open-mindedness about the sin that was taking place. And here's the specifics, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? Evidently, the situation is a man is sleeping with his stepmother. The stepmother is not a part of the fellowship. She's not mentioned as deserving discipline. Christians cannot discipline non-Christians in the things of the faith or morality. However, when you name the name of Christ and you're in the family of faith, there is an expectation that you seek to honor God in the way that you live. And when that expectation is not being followed, Paul says, you need to put this man out of the fellowship to demonstrate to your people and to everybody else that you care about this stuff and for his own good so that he will turn in repentance and come back to righteousness. But not, you shouldn't be uh, rejoicing in your open-mindedness. He moves on in chapter 6 to another issue. Basically, he's just lining up the issues. Okay, this is what we're going to see here. And then the next issue is an illustration of how divided this church is because they're taking one another into the court of law and suing each other. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? You see, the, the idea of taking Christians to court And settling dispute in a secular court is bad on two levels, Paul says. First of all, it just illustrates the divisions among you, that you can't work things out in love. And secondly, it calls the, the gospel of Jesus into question and into ridicule because the secular people, the pagans around you, look at you suing each other and they say, who wants to live like that? Who wants to be like them? They're no different than anybody else. And Paul recognizes that that's not how it ought to be. It's an illustration of their division. In fact, he says, the whole ethic of you kind of being in rivalry with one another is totally backwards. Look at verse 7 of chapter 6. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? In other words, remember what Jesus told us. Turn the other cheek. It's not about you getting your rights. It's not about you exerting your power. It's about you demonstrating love. It's not about victory in court. Victory in your life is being more and more conformed to Christ. Why not rather be cheated? 
Now, we need to understand that he, what he's not doing is setting up a rule that says that no Christian can ever access the legal system of their time. Paul accessed the legal system many times in the course of his life. But what he sees here is a petty, grasping rivalry that has spilled over into the secular courts, and it is causing the gospel to be looked down on. In the end of chapter 6, he moves on to immorality generally, more of a more sec, uh, general sexual nature. And the, the theme of those who are living outside of God's moral standards is, everything is permissible to me. In other words, the argument is very similar to what we hear today in our society. I'm not hurting anyone. We're consenting adults. We ought to be able to pursue the lifestyle of our preference. And in chapter 6, Paul reminds them that you can become a slave to what you think is freedom. Read with me the series of verses. I'll call them out. First verse 12 of chapter 6. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And what, is Paul, what Paul is saying here is, bottom line, God cares what you do with your body. Because it's easy to get into this rationalization that says, well, I feel spiritual on the inside, but what I do on the outside doesn't really matter that much. And Paul's point is, when you know Christ as your Savior, you are changed inside and out. Little by little, your behavior, your choices, your wants, your desires are more and more conformed to Christ. And you can't use this rationalization of, well, I mean to do better. You can't fall into this, we're not hurting anybody, argument. And so Paul kind of deals with the moral issue there, and then immediately in chapter 7, he deals with the issue of marriage. And uh, marriage in chapter 7 is an answer to a specific question that they've asked, and that is, there are some in the body who feel it's inappropriate to get married and some who want to get married. All of these issues stem from the marketplace of ideas in a Greek culture. See, there was one set of ideas that said that the physical part of you and the spiritual part of you never, never will meet. So you can be spiritual on the inside and do whatever you want to do on the outside and be perfectly fine. The other uh, uh, thought in the, in the ideas in Greek culture was that actually anything physical is evil. Physical life, physical things are evil by their very nature. So if you're going to be spiritual, and then when they come into the church, Christian, if you're going to be Christian, you ought to beat down the physical pleasures in your life. Get them done with so that you can devote yourself to spirituality. One side led to immorality. The other side led to an over-restriction, which said that even marriage was not allowed in the church because that led to physical pleasure. And Paul says in his argument that it's good for you to be single if you devote yourself to uh, following God and to working for the Lord, but it's not wrong to be married. In fact, there's something wonderfully right about marrying. Let me give you an illustration from modern day. How many of you have heard of or have shaker furniture? Shaker furniture is simple wooden furniture. The shakers were an off-growth of the Quakers in the 1700s. The shakers lived in community, and the way that they made money was to make that furniture, and now that's come as a style to us today. In the 1700s, 1800s, there were thousands and thousands of shakers in the country. Now, all I know of is one little village in Maine, and the reason is because they taught that a Christian should be single and celibate. Guess what happens when that's your doctrine? 
That's the end of the story, right? That is the end of the story. Paul says, you know, marriage is good for Christianity. Marriage is raising up children to follow the Lord. This is, this is good. And, uh, you know, if you're single and you're serving the Lord, wonderful. But then he gives this advice in verse 8 of chapter 7. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And we say amen to that. Thank you, Paul. That's true, true point there. In chapter 8, he goes on into what we call matters of conscience, gray areas where there is no direct teaching from the Lord or in the Scriptures about a certain behavior. Uh, and in Corinth, the particular behavior in question is eating meat. The issue is this. Uh, in the meat markets of the day, they sold meat, but this meat had been previously part of the ceremony in an idol temple. We know that the idol is not going to eat that meat, right? And so what happened? After a while, they took the meat to the market and they sold it. And uh, the, qu the question was from a Christian, am I able to eat that meat if it's been involved in, in this idol participation? The other question was, what they did was they had feasts in these towns, Corinth particularly, and the feast was held, civic feasts, you know, town feasts, but they held it inside some of the buildings that were associated with idol worship. So two-part kind of question here. Can we go to those things and can we eat that meat? And interestingly enough, what Paul does not do is he does not start giving rules and regulations, but rather he gives a principle by which all cultures and all people can evaluate matters of conscience. Because matters of conscience change as culture changes. See, here in the United States, we used to, you know, we have matters of conscience still to today. For instance, is it okay for a Christian to consume alcohol? How about the use of tobacco? How about dancing? Is dancing allowed if you're a Christian? What about going to the movies? I don't hear much about that anymore, but when I was growing up, that was an issue. Christians go to the movies. How about playing with face cards? That was an issue. How about playing billiards? Is that allowed? Go further back even. How about playing the piano? That was an issue. Or is a piano allowed in the church building as a part of the musical instruments? And the reason that that was an issue was because pianos were associated with saloons. And so there's always these gray areas that you talk about in terms of behavior. And Paul answers the question by establishing this principle, and the principle is consideration of the other person. Love the other person. Keep in mind the other person. He says this, in any congregation, in any group, there's going to be two groups of people. There's going to be what he calls the strong, who have a strong conscience. And the strong are those who realize, you know what, that idol is nothing. It's a piece of rock, and that meat tastes good, and I can eat that meat and not be tempted to worship that idol. That's the strong, okay? Then there's the weak. The weak say, yeah, but it seems to me that I'm participating in that worship if I eat that meat. So to me, it's kind of a sinful behavior. And Paul says to the strong, yes, you have freedom to eat the meat, but you do not have freedom to cause your brother or sister to stumble. And what is stumbling? Stumbling is when the weak see the strong and decide to participate in behavior they think is sinful so that they can fit in and be a part of the group. Let's look at verse 10. Look what it says. Chapter 8, verse 10. He's speaking to the strong here. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So his point to the strong is, you're asking the wrong question. It's not, can I do this? It's, ought I to do this in this situation, knowing how it will affect people around me? Your rights are not the issue to the strong. Consideration of others is the issue. But it is certainly important to note that this ex-Pharisee does not go towards legalism. He goes towards a principle that is applied in all kinds of situations. And the point is, we might not know 
how we're affecting people in our gray area behaviors. And so err on the side of caution in that regard. Well, the next issue that Paul's deal, Paul deals with is worship as we enter chapter 11. And the two issues that involved in worships are head coverings for men and women and communion. And um, the issue for head covering is uh, should women wear a head covering in worship and should men and, and, or should men wear a head covering? And the answer is this. Women, should, he says, should wear a head covering in worship and men ought not to. Let me explain why. Because in Corinth, if you remember, this city is filled with with prostitutes, right? And temple prostitution. And in Corinth, if you're a woman and you're in a co-ed gathering, a public gathering, and you have your head uncovered, it is a signal. I am a prostitute open for business, okay? And, and so Paul says, you ought not to be doing that when you gather. Be, be aware of your situation. But men, you too, ought to be dressing appropriately. And there's, there's, you know, I won't go into the details of his reasoning there, but it boils down to this. You have to dress pro- appropriately and modesty, modestly when you are together. And you have to dress in a way that recognizes that men are different than women. There's a difference here, and you have to recognize that difference. And the secret is to consider what's appropriate and what's modest in the way we look as we worship together. In fact, appropriate and modest applies in all of life. In all situations, we want to represent Christ well. So I say this, I say it all the time, I'll say it again. If when you're going out in the morning, you look in the mirror and you say, man, I'm hot, go back and change. (laughs) We're not going for hot, right? We're going for appropriate and modest. And that's what Paul says here. Now, the issue of communion shows us just how different the situation in the first uh, first century church is than our issue. Communion, for us, we do once a month inside the worship service. That's not how they did it. Their communion, their taking of, of the, the bread and the cup, was a part of what they called the love feast. It was a fellowship gathering for food, and they ate together, and part of it, then they paused and remembered Christ in his sacrifice. The problem was, in Corinth, there were those who were feasting without any sense of love at all. In fact, if you go over to uh, verse 21 of chapter 11, it says, For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry, and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? I love that. I just love that little, little edge there. Don't you guys have homes? And the, 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 again, the principle, though, is consider one another. Be loving towards one another. And when you worship, worship in good order and appropriateness so that all can participate. I have to move quickly now, but the next three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, are a group all dealing with the issue of the spiritual gifts, primarily tongues. Questions have come to Paul about the use of the spiritual gifts And he, in those chapters, gives three principles, three points. Number one, he says, the unity of the church is illustrated by the unity of the human body. We have different parts, and as they work together, we're working in health. And it's the same with the church. We have different roles, different parts, different gifts. Work together, and you're working in health. Number two, he says, the central issue of the working of your spiritual gifts is love. The foundational principle is love. And number three, the importance of the gifts given by the Holy Spirit is to edify and bless the people around you, not to elevate the one who is gifted. You are not the issue. The issue is how the exercise of your gift is affecting others. And central to the whole point, chapter 13, right in the middle of those three chapters, is the love chapter. You must be acting in love towards one another. Paul uses the word agape love in that entire chapter. It's love in action, not just a feeling of love. And if you don't Uh, have love towards one another, you can be using the gifts like crazy, but you're not doing it God's way. Because central to the issue is that you're doing it in love. I'm I'm moving fast now, but when you get to uh, chapter 15, Paul's talking about the resurrection of Christ. And um, the resurrection of Christ, he says, is of first importance. It's of first importance that they understand that Christ was raised from the dead because the resurrection validates everything about Christ 
and everything about the work of the, of the Christian gospel. And Paul in chapter 15 lists the appearances of Christ after his resurrection, who he was with, who he met, and in one instance he says, and he appeared to 500 people at one time. Now, we don't have a record of that appearance in the book of Acts or in the last parts of the Gospels. That's not included, but Paul shows us that that happened. And basically, his point is, many of those 500 people are still alive in the year 55. Go talk to them. They'll be the witness that they actually saw the risen Christ after the resurrection. And this is of first importance because it shows us that God not only intends to save us, that He can save us because He can defeat death. But He reminds us that the resurrection is not something that we just look back to in the past. It's something we look forward to in the future. Go to chapter 15, verse 20. It says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. A first fruit is the leading edge. It is the early example. He's saying we're all going to get resurrected bodies. We will all have that kind of spiritual uh, body that Jesus has after the resurrection. Paul is adamant about the fact that you're not going to, if you're a believer in Christ, you're not going to float through eternity haunting heaven like a ghost. You are going to get a body at the resurrection, and it will be a physical experience, and you will live in that perfected body in a united realm of heaven and earth called the new heavens and the new earth. And we have yet to see that, but Christ shows us that by example. We will experience that. As we get to chapter 16, Paul is drawing his letter to a conclusion. He calls for them to take the offering. Remember, this is the third missionary journey, so he's taking an offering for Jerusalem. He calls for them to take that offering, and getting money out of these people was tough. We'll see it again in 2 Corinthians, because these people work hard for their money. But he wants them uh, to take the offering, and we see some great insight about how the church is operating in the first century. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. He's saying, I don't want to take the special offering when I arrive. Do that ahead of time. But notice the insight that they gather on the first day of the week, year 55, and already the Christians have moved away from worship on the Jewish Sabbath, and they're now meeting on Sunday. And they're meeting on Sunday because they're celebrating the resurrection every time they get together. This is the day that Christ was raised. And when they gather, they give. And as they give, they give in a, a proportion to their income. Some can give a lot. Some only give a little. But all are to be generous. And Paul says, I want you to help out the other believers uh, around in Jerusalem. And so he signs off this letter with these words. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. And it strikes me that to this very dysfunctional church, troubled and wayward group, Paul affirms, I love you. God loves you. God is gracious to you. Take to heart my advice and correct what is carnal, and you will be mightily used in the hands of God. And he says that same thing to us today. Where none of us have arrived. We're, we're imperfect people. We're all in process. And as we take to heart what Paul says about changing to be more and more like Christ, we see him glorified in us.